Welcome to Rallon's Rant. I'm joined by Arthur Laplin for today's episode. Arthur was born in Ireland and has been credited as a producer for films such as The Boxer, In America, My Left Foot and Get Rich or Die Trying. Firstly, I'd like to say thanks for coming on the show today, Arthur. Very welcome. And secondly, I'd like to ask, how are you getting on today? I'm getting on great today. Uh, glad, glad that you've taken the trouble to travel out from Dublin to the uncooked centre of Ireland. Yeah. And... Uh, Looking forward to the chat. Good. And to start proceedings, could you describe to the listeners about your upbringing and what were some of your memories of your childhood that stand out? Well, my memories are very happy from my childhood. Uh, I had a a lovely upbringing in Kells in County Meath, uh, where my father was a local GP. And um, I uh, went to the local convent school initially and then to the local Christian Brothers School and then for... Secondary went to Clongos, where my dad had been and where my brothers, my eldest brother had been before me. So, um, so there was a kind of a, a little bit of tradition there. So, uh, very happy days in Clongos. Um, it was a, it was a tough regime. I think kids today would probably find it uh, a challenge. Well, yeah, I think so. Like corporal punishment was very much part and parcel, and I probably got much more of that than my fair share. Yeah. Well, maybe I got my fair share, but I got more than most. But I have nothing but the with, but the best memories, and I suppose that's exemplified best in the fact that I sent my three boys to Clongos too, and they've all finished now, and I'm very very happy with the experience. So, um, so after school, I. I think there was always an assumption at home that I'd go, I'd, I'd do medicine, I'd follow, follow my dad. I, was, I certainly know in retrospect I was very immature at that time. And I went to the College of Surgeons and uh, totally to, to please my parents because that's what one did back then. Yeah. And I'm talking now in the, in the late 60s. Um, I joined the Bank of Ireland. And joining the bank was, a, I suppose it was generally regarded at the time as a as a as a, a refuge of sinners in a way <laughs> and um, uh, I went into the Bank of Ireland having spent two years in the College of Surgeons spent uh, uh, eight years in the Bank of Ireland and became more and more unhappy at the prospect of spending the rest of my life working in the bank but at the same time as I was working in the bank I got very involved in amateur drama and when I wasn't drinking in the evening, I was usually uh, rehearsing a play or putting a play together and absolutely loved that. It was almost like I'd never got involved in plays at school. I think I was probably too shy, but I just suddenly found I had a, a loving for this for this kind of activity. Was there any, sorry to cut across, was there any inspiration for you to get interested in drama? You know, you work in a small country town like Baileyborough and there's very few things that you can do at night. I wasn't GA, I wasn't very sport oriented, so that end of things wasn't appealing. And really the people who did things in those small towns were blow-ins like myself. There were the bank officials, the teachers, the guards, they were 
the people that you kind of mixed with at night and and your social circle was it was in that world and um we decided to put on a play it was uh, i remember well it was uh, drama at Inish by lennox robinson and it was a complete revelation to me uh, just in terms of um, as, as, as something that that appealed to me like nothing ever had before so i kept involved with drama and i came back to i was transferred back to dublin in the bank not long after that i only spent about two years in baileyborough and when i was back in the in in dublin i joined two different amateur drama groups and was like uh, constantly rehearsing plays and doing plays in pubs and clubs and any any anywhere we could get plays on at the time and um, it got to a point where I was actually spending more time doing that than I was doing my bank work. And um, <clears throat> I looked for an opportunity to get out of the bank, which was hard to do. Like my, uh, In those days, <clears throat> the notion of permanent and pensionable employment was, very, was a very important thing for parents particularly. Yeah. And my mother died when I was, uh, God rest her, was when I was about 26, 27 and I honestly think had she lived, uh, I probably would still be, I would have retired from the Bank of Ireland after doing 40 yeah. years. It almost was, uh, when, she, when she died, it, it, it almost, in a, in a strange way, gave me a license to, to look at other possibilities. And I tried two things. I applied to the RTE rep. At that time, the RTE, RTE employed repertory of, mm. of actors on a full-time basis. And I also applied for uh, a job that was advertised in the Arts Council. Their drama and dance officer in the Arts Council it was the first time they had ever made this appointment. Because, and what what was the Irish film industry like back then? Because now, obviously, it's you're seeing year after year big movies come out. Absolutely, successful. and there was nothing, with the exception, there were there were a few. They were sort of British-based or American-based companies that came in and used Ardmore Studios, but there were no Irish producers at the time. Now, there was an honourable exception in that um, uh, Redmond Morris's father, the Lord Killannon, uh, did have a production company earlier, maybe 10 or 15 years earlier than this, and had done things like the Playboy of the Western World with Siobhan McKenna, which were like in retrospect were important uh, were important works but wouldn't have garnered mass audiences yeah. internationally or anything like that they wouldn't have had general release outside of Ireland and not even sure within Ireland that how, how wide the release would have been but uh, at that time when I worked in the Arts Council for example and there was no Irish film board at this stage um, film there, there was a thing called the Film Script Awards which the Arts Council gave every year which was worth 30,000 and like every director in the country, in the, in the country sought that, 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 award that award because it was literally, there was one of them uh, every year and everybody sort of went in for it. Uh, but really the, the guy I went to, uh, that I joined up with, David Collins, I would regard, he, he made a film with Carl Black in, I'm inclined to say, uh, in the late 70s called Pigs. And I think it was a really important film because it, was, it wasn't a big budget or anything and it didn't do spectacularly well or anything like that. But it was important in that I think it was the first time ever that an Irish producer was literally just that on a film. It was the first time a producer was employed just to produce. And it was out of that that David joined with John Kelleher and did um, uh, set up Strongbow and... 
at the same time I set up Screen Traders with David as well, but I subsequently merged into into Strongbow and worked with them for about two years and got a lot of experience, did a, a, a quite a well-budgeted drama series for Channel 4 called When Reason Sleeps, and we did saw, we did a, a couple of low-budget docu- uh, low uh, feature films, did some documentary work with... Uh, and were you producing on that? I was, produ- I was like a, a hired producer within... I was employed by Strongbow, but I actually was producing whatever needed to be produced, whether that was documentary or television drama or feature. That, that's what I did. And I did that for about two years. Out of the blue... I had a girlfriend at the time who was an actress and she she acted mainly with Jim Sheridan in Project. So I would have had a lot of exposure to the work that the Sheridan brothers did in in Project in those years. Mm-hmm. I was friendly with Jim Sheridan. But he went off to live in America for about eight years and um, he had come back to Dublin to basically do some work on a biography of Barry McGuigan that... He he, uh, he was writing Barry McGuigan's official biography at the time and he came back to Ireland doing some sort of promotional work on that but at the same time Noel Pearson had approached him to, uh, along with Shane Connaughton, to write an adaptation of Christy Brown's life and I would have been one of the very few guys around at the time who had produced some stuff. Yeah. I, I had done a course uh, that was actually run by an, an organisation called... Um, Anco. Anco was the forerunner of FOSS, uh, it's now called something else. Noel Pearson, who was the producer of the Christy Brown film, My Left Foot, mm. asked me would I line produce it because he had never done film before. Jim Sheridan had never directed film before, but I had actually... Just on that, like there's a lot of different phrases for producers. You know, you've got your producer, executive yeah. producer, co, line... What exactly, just for the listeners who don't fully understand it? Can, it can vary a bit. Line producer is a very specific role. It's, mm. it's basically running the production. It's managing the production. It's, it's, you're given the budget. You're probably not involved in raising the budget. Okay. But the producer raises the budget and then gives you the script and the, the principal cast and the director and you get on and you make the film for the budget within the schedule that's been agreed. And it's important to say... Most films, particularly independent films, have what's called a completion guarantor. It's a very specialised form of insurance that guarantees the financier that come what may, the film will be will be delivered. It's really important for mm. a financier. Uh, but you can imagine that that insurer has huge powers on a film. So if the line producer is not actually coming in on time and on budget, they basically get fired and be replaced. Okay. So... Um, so I was I, I was I, I was line producer on that. I was a good line producer. I think uh, actually very. I think I, I, it's it. I often think it's the thing I'm probably best at is trying to understand what the director's vision for the film is on one hand, and on the other hand, the the finite nature of the resources, the financial resources available, and the time resources available, and trying to make the best possible use of those two situations so it's like being sensitive to the director's needs but also being conscious that you have to do it within a certain amount of time and within a certain amount of money so would you reckon that you know do you think directors have to maybe compromise their art or some of their ideas due to some of the financial restrictions definitely all the time all the time particularly 
younger directors and directors who are making films for small budgets. Um, I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I often think smaller. I often think some of the smaller budget films we made were better films because it demanded more of all of us creatively to how are we going to best solve this problem. Somehow when you get to, as we did do, up to $40 million, it became a much more, I'm hesitant to say indulgent, but something approaching in an indulgent approach where mm. there wasn't the same kind of edge to, to, to maybe do your best. Um, maybe it did buy you more flexibility. Uh, maybe it did buy you better people. And better people, say, for example, in terms of directors of photography or designers, inevitably want to spend more money. Yeah. That's the nature of the game. So where, you know, we made my left foot for £1.7 million at the time. A couple of years later, we made uh, The Boxer for $40 million. You know, it was like... The, and the $40 million back then was serious amount yeah. of money that was mid 80s you know so it was a it was a serious amount of money and um and i'm not sure that you know i'd look at my left foot today and i'd certainly see things that i i wished we had more time or i wished we had more money to spend on design or something but like i know what, there's an you, edge to it if you could give an example like what particular thing because like my left foot it got nominated for Oscars. So it got five so, nominations. Yeah, it was yeah. hugely successful in that, yeah. uh, right. But what do you feel, whether it was actually a filming issue or budget, like what I, I, I would, out? I would say time that we, you know, we, a lot of times we, you know, we literally had to stop shooting. We couldn't do two more takes at the end of the day because we couldn't afford to pay the crew the overtime. So you literally stop it. In a strange way, like certainly where the performances were concerned, and that was Jim Sheridan's, like that's his his absolute signature is his ability to work with actors to garner extraordinary performances. Mm. Like I think he's probably, I don't know, I can't be certain of this, but I think he might be the only director in the world to have had uh, his first three films nominated for Best Actor in the Oscars. I'd say you struggle to find. You know, like he had Christy Brown, or he had Daniel uh, as Christy Brown. He had um, Richard Harris in the field, was Mm. nominated for Best Actor, and uh, Daniel was nominated for Best Actor for... In the Name of the Father, yeah. So I I think, I, I might be wrong about that, but I suspect he may be the only director of the world in his first three features had a Best Actor nomination, as well as loads of other acting nominations, like... Brenda Fricker won won the Oscar for uh, My Left Foot as well. So, yeah, this guy who, who had, with Shane Connaughton, had, had done a really interesting adaptation and a very free adaptation of Christy Brown's life. Uh, like, there are many incidents in the film which weren't actually from Christy's life, but mm. which are very true to the essence of the man. And I remember... Christie's family and he's a big family coming to Ardmore Studios to see uh, a screening of the film long before we actually released it and they were absolutely thrilled with and I remember hearing them talk about the scene do you remember the scene with the with the coal lorry mm. uh, I think it was on Sheriff Street we shot it uh, where they opened the coal lorry and all the coal comes out the back. That wasn't from Christie's life. That was from Jim Sheridan's childhood. Okay. So, but it was it was completely true to the spirit of 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 who Christie Brown yeah. was, and um, and I think 
obviously we we were very fortunate to have had the to for Daniel to have done it and Daniel like absolutely wanted to do it with Jim uh, like Jim was writing the script at the time but my understanding was that Daniel said he would he would act in the leading role on condition that Jim directed it bearing in mind that Jim had never directed a yeah. film before now he had been a very eminent <coughs> theatre director and had done remarkable work on the stage but um, and I would say t- to this day I still obviously go to the theatre and I would say some of the stuff I saw in in project at that time was better than anything I've seen in the last 20 or 30 years which are you know companies that are a lot more resourced than project was back then yeah. uh, so he he's a fantastic ability to 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 deliver with very little money uh, and uh, as I say there's almost a part of him that almost in a way the less money he had the better he was because he was more inventive and more creative Okay, uh, but there, there, there was there would be a give and take thing on the money as well. You asked about you know directors compromising, like I'd remember on the name of the father, which was significantly more money, but not not a bottomless pit of money. And uh, I would remember on, on on that where Jim would want to do something that we hadn't scheduled, and I'd say, sure, we can do that, but you have to give me something back from later in the schedule. You yeah. know, you have. To, the money's finite, so if you want to spend more of the resources there, I've no problem with that. But we have to find, so we have to, to save, find a saving somewhere else. And was there ever a case where that was maybe promised? <laughs> so he would say, "Yeah, listen, I'll give you such and such back." But then we're, when it got to the time, he was like, "No, we need it." Yeah, and then you went over budget. And always, you know, like that's the that's the human nature of of of, of making film, and it's kind of the, it's about the kind of trust. Um, like Jim would always shoot in post-production we would never have budgeted to shoot in post-production mm. and it's quite expensive often to recreate sets particularly where you've built sets or if there's any special effects involved in those scenes it's, it's, and getting the cast back maybe three, four, five weeks into editing to get the cast back they're out of contract you mm. know and you know that they hadn't cut their hair or you know that they were still looking the same as they were in the film that's very tough but he's always managed to we've always managed to do that often it meant going back to financiers and saying look we have a very special film here and you know let's not sink the ship for hape worth the tar and uh, in 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 most cases we were able to go back it's it's a hard negotiation like going back to financiers and saying I know we said we'd make it for 12 million, but we actually need 15 or we need 14 or whatever. That's hard. And they sometimes will extract quite a cruel price from us as producers uh, for that. And, you know, you're expected to put some of your own fees back into the film mm. with very little prospect of ever getting seeing, seeing that money again. But I suppose in the end of the day, what we're constantly doing and what I loved working with Jim, it was never about making money. Sure, we wanted to be paid, but what we always wanted to do was make the best films we possibly could. And I think in that sense, he and I had, had a very... We were, on, we were very much on the same wavelength as far as I was concerned. That It got to a point where it, it didn't matter how much more money it was going to cost to do an extra three days filming. We had to do it. Yeah. The film needed it. So you wouldn't... Like we previously said, the art just wouldn't be compromised to an extent. And yet, to kind of take a few steps back there, you were speaking about... Jim Sheridan getting the best out of his cast. Well, it's up, it's up to debate, but some of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's best performances have come in. You know, My Left Foot, In the Name of the Father. The Boxer. The Boxer. 
and he could go on and on all about of his uh, top roles. What was it like? Because you hear many myths behind the camera. Like Daniel Day-Lewis, they claim that when he was shooting my left foot, he would refuse to come out of the, the wheelchair, which led him to breaking two of his ribs. Like, is that type of stuff true, that he was such a method actor, that he was so dedicated to the cause? I heard about him breaking his ribs, and that's a, that's a new... It's a an new, internet... A new, a new mythology myth, that's yeah. grown up... Um, he might have he might have damaged ribs when he was doing the boxer. I know he hurt his back when when he was training for the boxer. But no, he, he did. He stayed in character through the entire shooting day uh, and and during rehearsals before we started filming. He'd come on set in the wheelchair and and doing all the the, the movement uh, that that you'd you'd associate with Christy Brown mm. or somebody with that disability. And um, but there was nothing precious about it absolutely nothing precious about it it was very challenging it kind of forced you to every day to realize what it was you were filming what the reality was you never for a moment and it was the same with jerry conlon in 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 the name of the father you never once because of the intensity of of his immersion in the in the role you never once doubted his his connection to the character that he was playing. And through him, we all experienced that connection. It was an extraordinary thing. Uh, and, you know, some people talk about method acting, which was, you know, something that came out of the Lee Strasberg School in America mm. and was very kind of prop-oriented and business-oriented where actors would be doing business. And some of it gave me a pain in my face over the years. Like, I, I remember, I'm not going to mention particular names, but yeah. famous actors who... You just said, "Put down the ashtray. Stop yeah. playing with the thing." You know, it was it was so obvious that they were using those kind of props to motivate. But that's not what Daniel was doing. Daniel was uh, he would t- his research was impeccable. Um, he demanded a phenomenal amount from himself, physically and emotionally and intellectually. But he demanded the exact same from the from the from the crew. Not in in the way that some actors demand stuff from the crew and they're actually spoiled brats and yeah. shouldn't you know you want to slap them sometimes. Um, and I shouldn't say that too often. That doesn't happen too often. In my experience, the great actors never behave like that. Uh, it's often the actors who aspire to being great. Yeah. Who, who think who are, they're bigger than they actually are. Exactly. So that can, can be the case. But I could not for... I, I think the, one of the greatest assets we had on any of the films we, we made with Daniel was Daniel. I think he set a, he set a bar, he set a standard for all of us. And, um, and that he wasn't just with us he you know his his body of work through his through his acting career which i gather is no more now that he's not going to do any more acting mm. you know i'm not inclined to say it's a shame i think he's left he's left in, in a phenomenal legacy of of yeah. extraordinary work yeah well he's worked with the best so i doubt he's got any huge regrets he's got the accolades on the cv and all the rewards for it yeah and he wouldn't he wouldn't have regarded um I suppose the the one aspect of the bit he he didn't like the business of film he didn't like the idea of him being sold his his performance being sold and particularly when it comes to the Hollywood machine he was very against that well I often say you know if you're if you're if you're getting paid a relatively modest fee you, you know you'll support the film because it's good work and you want to support the film and get it out there 
But if you're being paid very big money, as some actors are, uh, you know, you hear actors being paid $20 million mm. uh, plus, and that's only the tip of the iceberg because they often have a first dollar gross position as well on the, on the exploitation. Um, yeah, I th- I, I, as, as from a financial point of view, I'd say if you're getting that kind of money, you better break your balls supporting the film when it gets out into the marketplace because some people have invested a phenomenal amount of money in this project in order for you to be paid that and the only way to recoup it is to is to make sure the marketing uh, is is a successful aspect of the release of the film and they can make a huge difference to that so but but he was i i say it only because not that he was grudging in any bad sense but that he just wasn't it wasn't him it wasn't he wasn't yeah. comfortable doing it he's a very personal uh, very private kind of guy you know? yeah you rarely see interviews or any kind of public appearances from him apart from when it's obviously connected to some of the films he's acting acting in yeah as you were saying that you were producing you were helping out with these multiple projects some producers end up being in charge of finance, while others have to go out and find script writers, directors, cast. My question to you is, what would your role as producer consist of based on the films that you've worked on? So not, not, you don't have to name every single one. But no, but the, I I'm suppose sure it, it varied from film to film, but, yeah. but by and large, I was always... I, I, I've very rarely been involved in films where I took a credit, where I wasn't actually very... Involved in the in, in the physical making of the film. Um, in some instances, uh, when I worked with Jim, uh, which was a, a fair not all by any means all the work we did. Uh, like I think I've done about fifteen or sixteen features and probably five or six with Jim. Um, they were mainly studio financed films, mm. which was. It's not something Irish producers are used to because it's a single source of finance. You go to a studio and Universal says, yeah, we'll, we'll do the film. And from that moment on, you never have to think about the money because the money comes in in three currencies when you need yeah. it. And it's <laughs> just magic. <laughs> yeah. Now, that wasn't the case with but My Left Foot or The Field. Um, that They were very unusual in that uh, My Left Foot... Um, was Granada Television in the UK, or Granada Films, which was a, a subset of, of Granada, the, the big Granada company, um, had put a significant amount of that budget in. I think perhaps, I'm trying to scratch my head here, but I'm inclined to say about 60% of it. And uh, would you believe that Rehab had a significant investment, cash investment, in my left foot? Well. Wow. If you think back now to those days and, and, and compare it with today, if you heard the Irish Times tomorrow yeah. had heard that rehab had invested a hundred grand in a film, there'd be very serious questions about is that what the public are giving their money yeah. for and all that. But it actually was genius. They, they took the view at the time that the, the, the that if this film was successful and it was a huge international success, mm. if it was successful, what that would do for rehab's objective in terms of normalising people's attitudes towards disability and, 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 and opening people's minds to the fact, you know, at that time, the illness Christy Brown had, people call them spastics. Yeah. You know, that was the word that was used. And, and it was utterly pejorative and implied that there was some sort of mental 
issue involved, mental deficiency involved. Christy Brown, nothing could be further from the truth. He had a physical disability that made it very hard for him to communicate, but he actually was a really bright, creative man beneath that. And uh, so rehab... And they got, the, the nice thing was rehab got all their money back plus, plus a bit. But if they'd never seen a penny of their money back, they would have regarded their investment as having been really worthwhile because of what it did for the image of disability mm. in Ireland and elsewhere at the time. So, so that, that was kind of a pretty odd source of, of... And it was a significant investment in the film at the time. Um, when we made the, fi- the field shortly afterwards, that was 100% financed by, um, by Granada. Again, really unusual for a British TV company to, uh, to fully finance, uh, I think it was, I'm inclined to say f- four, around £4 million, I think at the time was the budget. Uh, that was a big heap of change for one company mm. to, take, to take the full risk on that. And I'd say they, they did okay out of it. Uh, but all of the films after after my left foot on the field, we had done a deal at Universal. So we had a we had what was called a housekeeping deal at Universal, and we made several films, both Jim directing, but sometimes with other directors at Universal for a period of years. And it wasn't really until almost after my time with Jim, or towards the end of my time with Jim, that I started as a producer, having to sort of go out and try and find money in international financial markets uh, which is what a lot of other companies do and it sometimes it's a pain in the arse you know where you have seven or eight or ten different sources of money to try and put your put your budget together it's very complex the the one good thing about that though is if you have seven or eight or nine sources of money no one source tends to dominate creatively whereas if you're getting all your money from one source there tends to be more power behind the money and that they can be they can be much more assertive in what in terms of what they want like we'd have always been very careful with Jim that he had final cut on on, on the films that it was contractually given that the film that would be released was the film that he wanted to release Mm. that they couldn't actually take it over as has happened with other directors um, and that the the distributor effectively edits the film at the end of the day that's interesting I was I was thinking there like what would be the actual the biggest challenge for a producer when making a film because you have to think you need to get the cast and crew together before even shooting begins then you need to find a budget as you were saying whether that's going to be one company or it's going to be seven or eight different uh, institutions involved I suppose to put that into a question what is the hardest part of putting a film together in your view as a producer I I I, I think getting the script right because like to me the script is the bible mm. uh, if if you don't have a good script you probably shouldn't be making the film yeah. <laughs> uh, although there's a lot of films that are made with bad scripts and uh, it's actually something Bono actually said years ago I remember being in company with him in LA because he had he'd written some songs for a number of the films we'd made and I remember sitting at the Chateau Marmont one day and Jim and I were moaning about the fact that some film had come out it was a pretty shit film but it was made for a lot of money and we were sort of saying you know so many great scripts don't get made and so many bad films do get made mm. Bono said you have it all wrong he said it's not about good scripts or bad scripts it's about momentum 
And I've never forgotten that. I thought it was a great insight that that actually getting a film made, and I think it's probably true of other things in the commercial world, uh, entrepreneurs would probably respond to this, that if you have momentum, that that, that, that can actually drag the drive the, the whatever the project is into existence um, and what would you phrase as momentum would that be a, a big actors come off a big yeah film? Where, you, where, you, where, you, where you you know you, you get a confluence of events that you're you've, you've spent five years developing a script and you're ready to put it out in the world you find an actor you find a director and you're you're launching it so when you're launching it like that you're basically trying to attract the money guys. Yeah. And uh, once you have one or two money guys interested, they all want a piece of it. They all want to yeah. be involved. So that's what I mean by momentum. So that you're, mm. you're driving and you say, we have to shoot on the 1st of March because Daniel's only available on the 1st of March and we lose the window. So it's like a train that starts to gather momentum leaving a station and people don't want to be left behind. They want to jump on the train. They're jumping on the carriages, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's very much that sort of thing. But to go back to your original question, I, I think the hardest part is getting... For me, I, like I can't, as a producer now, not working with Jim anymore, and that's all, all amicable, there's no, there's no bad, I can talk mm. about that if you want to, but um, I'm developing stuff on my own now, and... That is the hardest part for me, is getting the script to a point where I'm satisfied, where I can feel I can actually send this out to A-list cast and and actually be able to defend this script because I think it's a great script. I nothing hate nothing more than seeing a script going out when it's not actually ready, when it needs another mm. two drafts, or it actually needs to be put back in a drawer for five years. <laughs> um, and there's a huge amount of that around, you know, and I, I, I would... Just in terms of the Irish industry, I would have, I would say, and I've said it quite audibly uh, over the years, that I, in my view, um, where the Irish film industry has been really successful in the last twenty years, uh, I would still be very strongly of the view that far too many films have received funding, production funding from the film board before the scripts were ready to be made. And I, I, I would stand up and, and defend that, that view. I think there are far too many films that could have been better. I think there are many films that shouldn't have been made, possibly, but I think there are far too many which could have been so much better if a small amount of additional money was, was invested and time invested in the development of the script. Because I think if you, have, if you have the script right, it's there's a kind of a it doesn't always work this way but there is a kind of a, a circle that sort of says the script attracts the director the director the director attracts the cast and the cast attracts the money that's generally the kind of circle cycle, that yeah. you're involved in because the first thing a, a director will want to see is the script um, the first thing an actor will want to know is who's directing it and the first uh, and the first thing a financier will ask you is who's in it yeah you know so it's it, there, there is it doesn't always work that way it can it can work you can sometimes develop something with an actor specifically in mind so the director will come on at a later stage but it it it, it tends to work that way okay so you've kind of given us a, an overview of kind of your body of work and it's it's spanned over nearly now 25 years and you still obviously remain involved in the drama and film industry. 
What I'd like to know is what has been the most noticeable change with film during that period, whether it's on or off the screen. Because I remember reading last week in, a, I think it was Rolling Stone, they were saying, comparing now to 20, 30, 40 years ago, they were saying since most of the audiences now have got short attention spans that the shots you were seeing 60, 70 years ago were lasting 12, 15 seconds. Now I think the average in today's industry is two seconds. That's kind of an example there, but just in your opinion, I was wondering what do you think, whether it's on or off the screen, financially, what's the big difference between... I, I think there are a couple of huge changes that have taken place, uh, certainly in the last 10 years. The, the business model has completely changed. Like time was when, when people, companies, studios, invested in theatrical feature films for cinema release uh, with television, video being secondary markets for, for the film. Mm. What has like completely revolutionised the business in the last few years is that only sort of what we would call tentpole films are being treated in that way now, like the big, big $100 million, $150 million films. And they're marketing exercises because almost irrespective of whether the film is good or bad, um, it's all kind of superhero stuff. Um, they're very expensively made films. Some of them are good, some of them are absolute crap. Terrible, yeah. Uh, but the marketing spend is so huge on them that they'll get the first two weekends out of them, and that's all they want. If they get two weekends uh, where they can gross 100, 120, 140 million dollars domestic in, in, in the States, that, that will help to get them out on their, in, on their investment. And very often the ancillary markets like television, video on demand, those kind of things, there is a, a proportionality between, uh, that links their value in those markets to the value that was actually generated at the cinema. So the kind of films that I've traditionally made, which is kind of like 7 to 12 million pounds, that, that's the, the range I'm, I'm kind of mm. happiest working in. That's very hard to raise that money now because it's neither fish nor flesh. If it's a, if it's a 2 million euro or 3 million euro film, you'll get organisations like the Irish Film Board and maybe a television station that will support that and you'll just be able to make it from that money. But if I'm making a film for, say, $10 million, I can't make it with just Film Board and some TV money. I have to have some industry investment in that or bank investment or uh, pro- professional film investment in that, in that mix. And that's very hard money to, mm. to attract. So the, the business model has changed radically in the last 10 years and has shifted totally towards television. Uh, all the big actors... Like when I was starting for making these films, my left foot on the field, these actors we're talking about would not appear in television. They just didn't do TV. There were, there were TV actors and there were movie actors mm. and they tended not to be the same. Now all the big movie actors are working in television because that's where the big bucks are. And part of that got destroyed because of, of two things. I suppose the way in which this... This generation and the emerging generations are actually consuming stuff. They're not watching. They're 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 not going to cinema in the same numbers, and they're not watching television in the same way anymore. So you've had a big influx of of investment from the likes of Amazon and Netflix over the last few years, which is effectively a video on demand platform. And um, so so as I say, the business model has changed. 
Within the film, film itself, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Like I, some of my favorite films of all time, uh, I'd be constantly. My kids are interested, like love watching mm. movies, like most young people. And I'd say, oh, you have to see this, or you have to see that. And they're like out the door within twenty minutes. Mm. Too slow, too slow, yeah. too slow. So you're absolutely right that the, the 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 way in which films are edited now is is quite different in in a lot of instances to the way it used to be years ago. Um, and I would say, looking back on on say even you know my left foot, I, I I'd say if you made my left foot today, you might have. You might have edited it in a, in, a, in a somewhat different way to to accommodate the tastes of the of the current audiences, mm. but I don't think anything has fundamentally changed in terms of my. It's my great source of my hope for the future, is you know telling stories is something that goes back to before we had writing. It goes back to the Greeks. It 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 it, it, it has been with us for thousands of years it's not going to go away simply because everybody's watching stuff on on their iPhones or whatever yeah. it is today the the need to to tell stories and listen to stories i think will will absolutely survive and there's a kind of a pendulum swinging you know you're beginning to I'm very interesting in the last couple of weeks uh, see the the consumption of news on social media now by young people has declined substantially because they don't trust it anymore. There's so much fake news out there. So I think there is a the, the, the pendulum swung very far in one direction. I think it's probably swinging back a bit now. You were saying there of the passion you have for a good story and go, a good film. What film that you worked on in that long list were you kind of most proud of to have your name a part of, if you could? I know it's like picking maybe your favourite son, but... <laughs> I I I've always you know I'm, I'm, whenever I'm asked that I would generally say uh, in America, um, and that's partly there's a conceit in that because like all of Jim Sheridan's films, some are certainly the ones I worked with him on where there was a significant element of Jim Sheridan the man in those films yeah. and, and dilemmas that he had particularly the death of his brother when when he uh, when he was in his late teens and uh, and the family growing up in in several places it's all it, it's all in those films like that that It'll tie in yeah like uh, uh, jim's deceased brother frankie is in is all over the place in his work. You sometimes have to search for it. Like it's the it's the young guy that committed suicide in in the field. Yeah, uh, the bull, the bull's son that that died, or the implication is that he committed suicide. Mm. Uh, although that was never in John B. Keane's play. That was that's what's really interesting. You know, you're 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 adapting one of the great loved plays of the twentieth century in Ireland, which was The Field by John B. Keane. And Jim came along, and he he made a lot of changes. Like he he almost turned he he changed the period. It wasn't set in the fifties anymore. It was set in the thirties. Uh, the character that comes in to buy the field is not an English man, which he is in the play. He's an American. He looks uncannily like John F. Kennedy. Mm. Uh, he at the end. He he. There's a self-destructive thing at the end where he's he's actually beating the waves. Richard Harris whacking the waves after the son is killed when he goes over the cliff. Yeah, 
Like that's straight out of Yeats's On Balia Strand, where having killed his son on Balia Strand, Cúholan goes into the waves and fights the waves at the end. So it's the, the, the mythology, in a way, of, of Jim's script of the field is very different to the almost docu-reality that John B. used as the source material because mm. the, the story of the field comes from Bally McElligot in Kerry and, and uh, an actual murder that took place, an unsolved murder that took place in the 50s in, in, outside Tralee. Uh, so, but, but Jim took that story and whether John B. liked it or whether other people liked it, he, he actually invested it with a kind of a mythology that, uh, that I don't think was possibly in the, in the original or certainly not intentionally in the original. And, um, but the film of all of his that I, that I feel is most truly and compli- in a complicated way uh, tells a profound story is, is in America. Because if you imagine that Jim has lost his son in real life, his brother, sorry, his sorry. brother in real life. In that film, the central character lose, loses his, his son. So in a weird way, as a filmmaker, Jim is in both the position of the father and the son. Mm. It's like it's really, psychologically, it's very, it's very complex. Yeah. And, um, but that's probably what makes it so good. And I think that, and that's what I come back to. And it's entirely set in Manhattan. Yeah. And nobody has ever... I used to, when we do preview screenings of the film in, in, in America, which we would do for months on end before we'd release the film, just to fine-tune it and get response. Sometimes you might want to revoice a line somewhere because the, they're just not picking up on what was being said. And, and I think it's crazy not to do those kind of things. If you can make the film more understandable to a wider audience, why would you not do yeah. that, you know? But... Um, I remember at the end of those screenings, we'd have a focus group, and I'd often sort of say at the end, was there, like, telling the story that we had actually shot all but 10 days of it in, in Dublin, and was there anything in it that kind of looked wrong? And I remember one guy standing up one night and said, right enough, that building didn't, that, that the main building where they lived on the outside didn't look like, it really didn't look like New York. I said, that building is in Tompkins Square Park in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. But having somebody like Declan Quinn, the two things we did that, that made that work, and we had to do it here because we could access a tax break here, which we couldn't have done if we had shot it all in New York. And also shooting in New York was much more expensive. Like we were the second film to shoot in New York after 9-11. The, I remember going down to... In America was 2002, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. The year after, yeah. Were released anyway. Released, no, it was shot. Like I, I walked down to uh, Ground Zero two days after I arrived in New York to to prepare for uh, our shoot on in America, and the smoke was still coming out of the ground. It was horrendous, horrendous. But it was um, yes, New York is a very expensive city to shoot in, so we we couldn't have done it any other way. But the two things that we did, we had Declan Quinn, uh, who actually. Hales or his family hailed from just up the road here in in Burr, um, but he's he grew up in in Chicago and uh, he's a fantastic DP, but he had shot a huge amount of stuff in New York and um, every time he looked through the lens he was able to say in Dublin 
I can buy that for New York. And once Declan was able to say, I can buy that for New York, you felt okay about it. And the other thing was a lot of the small roles, rather than have Irish actors putting on New York accents, we actually spent a significant amount of money bringing in authentic New York voices uh, from from the States to be in it. Mm. And that I think that helped. Anything that helps... You know, it's amazing if you... The, one of the opening scenes in that in that film is the family coming into the uh, Midtown Tunnel, and you get this great vista of Manhattan yeah. as they come come into into New York. Once you have that shot, you're telling the audience are in New York. Unless you do something pretty awful, severe, they're not going. They're, you've suspended their disbelief. They're not going to actually. So you just have to not do anything that. So if if that's an actor's voice that doesn't sound authentic or it's a shot that doesn't seem right, it pulls people out and it, it spoils the, the illusion. Yeah, uh, It's like a contract immersed. that we, when we pay our money and the lights go down in the cinema, there's, Jim often described it as a suspension of our mortality, uh, which I think is really psychologically interesting that, that when you go into a, a cinema, you suspend your disbelief for an hour and a half, whatever it is. And the greatest crime you can commit during that hour and a half is to is to take somebody's mind out of that. So so long as you keep that suspension of disbelief going for the hour and a half, you've actually you've fulfilled your contract with the member of the audience. Yeah. Don't know what they were doing. <laughs> but they were just constant movement. You talked about earlier on, you know, uh attention span it was that kind of thing I just how can they're going to miss this bit yeah, how, no, no. are they going to know how the film resolves if they're going to miss that bit mm. and it didn't seem to bother them it's just the way they no it's the way it is these days yeah a last point on in America obviously it was very successful it got about 25 million at the box office three Oscar nominations with the success that came with it there's relief there's success there's happiness all that when you get, say, an Oscar nomination for Best Actor or Best Director or Best Film, whatever, how gratifying is that, the whole crew, the whole cast and crew? And also, to add a second question onto that, what's it like to actually attend the Academy Awards? It's always a great honour to be recognised by your peers because that's what the Oscars is. It's, 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 it's peer uh, nomination and peer voting that's involved. I think there's a fierce amount of hype attached to it and uh, I, I take that slightly with a pinch of salt. Like, it's fun. And, mm. uh, I suppose it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an international focus on, on our industry every year that, that kind of... Um, I don't like the self-congratulatory kind of part of it and a lot of the bullshit that, 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 yeah. that goes on around it. But it is, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, I think when it happened to us first, I don't think we had a clue what it meant. I honestly don't. Like, coming out of Ireland where, when we made in, in uh, My Left Foot, I'd say there were two, maybe three films a year being made in Ireland. And that was it. Uh, any, any TV drama that was being made was being made internally in RTE. There were no, so there, there was a tiny independent production sector in Ireland at that time. Not even sure there were three films a year going on at that stage. And so getting three Oscars uh, was... Or getting five nominations and winning two uh, was an extraordinary achievement for a a little small film from a country that had no association with the industry. 
And um, I remember going to LA on a, like there were about seven or eight of us from the crew, the editor, the production manager, uh, the, uh, the designer, the costume designer. We we paid ourselves and we went to LA to be part of the party. And obviously, Jim and. Noel were going because they had been nominated, so they were all being paid for. But we were really happy just to be there. Yeah. And something struck me during that and was reinforced out when the fields, which came very quickly on the heels of, of my left foot, that actually we were really good. You know, I didn't realise objectively by international standards that we were good at this. And I suddenly realised, I said, we're, we're as good as anywhere. Mm. We're as good as England. We're as good as America at doing this not in a cocky sense but in terms of a realisation that actually all the hard graft that we put into this we've actually spent our time and our money really well because we've actually delivered the goods and uh, what was the second part of your question? Just like what was it like oh, what to was it like be after? surrounded by the so-called Hollywood well, it, it, loyalty? It was obviously to be to, to have won Oscars was, was huge to be nominated and not to win yeah, yeah. Long like way I, to go. I will never forget the night sitting through uh, the Oscar ceremony. And the Oscars are very different to the Golden Globes. Like the Golden Globes is a dinner. Yeah. And it's TV and film. It's a, it's a very different kind of structure and it's much more convivial. Whereas the Oscars is a sit down. It's like going to the gaiety. You know, it's everybody sitting down in their place. And um, we had seven nominations for In the Name of the Father. And the irony is that Schindler's List had 13 nominations the same year. We were both made the films, our respective films, for Universal. In the name of the father Mm. was Universal, so was Schindler's List. And Schindler was, like, the lore at the time was that Spielberg had just earned shitloads of money for Universal through Jurassic Park. It was like a phenomenal yeah. hit for them. And he wanted to do this film that was really dear to him, uh, which I think the studio executives at Universal said, we give him the money because he's made a fortune for us. But it's a kind of a little German <laughs> yeah. Nazi film. In Poland, it's a kind of a love project of his, but nobody had any expectations for it. And here, Universal find themselves with I think 12 or 13 nominations for Schindler's List and I think we had six or seven for uh, In the Name of the Father and we won none and that was a very very long night it was a bore like not boring it was it was just a it was kind of depressing and I felt particularly I think Daniel should have won that year he was beaten by Tom Hanks for um, Philadelphia Hmm. and where, where where I think Tom Hanks who did an extraordinary thing because he won back-to-back Oscars for Best Actor. The following year, he won for Forrest Gump, Mm. which I think he absolutely deserved. But I never... I was never... That scene where where Tom uh, walked around with the the drip in the hospital and they played the opera music, which was kind of the big moment of the film, I never, in my heart, felt that. I just... I felt it fell short, not because his performance wasn't good. It may have been the writing, it may have been the way it was shot, but I never thought... I, I thought Daniel should have won that year, but didn't. And um, anyway, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> was, it, was it similar to, say, in sport, when you get to the final and you come up 
a step short, come up second best and don't get the award, don't get top prize, or is it more of a case of just it's a it's good to have, but it's not going to make or break my mood. It's not going to make or break how I view this film. Or do a few people, whether it's connected with you or other films, well, took it really to heart and thought. No, I don't. I, I don't honestly think. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything. I've never heard Jim, and I, I, I think I would have if he had felt this. I never, and I certainly never felt that. In the name of the Father, was less than it might have been. I think we we did what we set out to do with that film. I think we made a really really strong film about a really major miscarriage of justice that was incredibly important in terms of Anglo-Irish relations at the time. Um, I'm not. I don't know for a fact, but I know Clinton viewed it uh, not more than a week or two before Jerry Adams was granted his visa to to go to America. Because remember, Jerry yeah. was, wasn't allowed. No, I'm not making. I'm not making. I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm, it sounds like I'm making a big claim for it. And films don't deserve to ever make those kind of claims because it's entertainment at yeah. the end of the day. But it was about a serious issue uh, like Jim has in a lot of his work has been concerned with the the relationship between the two islands and I suppose would 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 often have characterized England as a bad parent towards Ireland like a bad father mm-hmm. and um and I think he would never have been he would have been republican but never IRA. Like he, he would have been very clear about that. Yeah. Even though we, we made, say, Terry George's film, Some Other Son, which would be closer. It, it, somebody very eminent who had a lot of control in the film industry here at the time, it was certainly reported to me that he had, he had said that, in, that Some Other Son was seditious, which I think was outrageous, mm. um, particularly at, at, in the same year that it came out that um, Neil Jordan's film, Michael Collins, came out and was by the same person commended to schools uh, as, as viewing. And, you know, whatever you think about Michael Collins, like the, the, Neil certainly took significant license with some of, some of the, the uh, historical events in, in, in that film. And, uh, uh, but... W- Jim was always concerned to, in a very holistic, thorough way, to explore and ask questions about the nature of the relationship between the two islands, uh, but without, as I say, stepping over that line yeah. into into a kind of a pro-violence. He was never, ever pro-violence. Interesting. Well, that's, that's pretty much it. To finish off, I do a quick-fire round of questions. Sure. And none of them are too bad or too good. But um, whatever pops into your head first and foremost, just shout it out. And as I always say, if it's something uh, not pretty, I can always edit it out. Okay. So, um, tea or coffee? Tea. What is your favourite hobby? Birdwatching. Your favourite band? I'm not hugely into, into pop music, so I kind of don't, I kind of don't really have a favourite band. Um, the RT Symphony. Yeah, <laughs> that counts. That counts. Um, asking questions or answering them. Oh, I'd be on the fence on that. Both, okay, both fifty-fifty. Uh, your favorite county in Ireland? Galway. Your favorite director of all time, apart from 
Mr. Sheridan. Fellini. And last but not least, sum yourself up in three words. Never give up. Nice. Well, uh, that that concludes the episode. I want to thank you a lot for coming on, Arthur. I really enjoyed it. Gave some incredible insights to the ins and outs of the film industry. And um, I wish you all the best with the future as well. Thanks, Richard.